Well, good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Grab a Bible and head to Genesis chapter 1. Should be the first page of your Bible. Shouldn't be too hard to find, but we're going to be there this morning. We are in uh, our Theology of Sex Plus series where we are trying to, as a church, get our footing in the midst of a culture that has a torrent of things to say about how we ought to think about men and women and gender and sex and sexuality. That we are just overrun with, this is how you're supposed to think about that, this is how you're supposed to say that, this is what's true, this is what not. I mean, it's, it's um, unending and relentless, and we need to be able to take some time to say, does the Bible help us out here? Does it tell us anything that will give us some clarity? So this morning, I'm going to say something that uh, philosophers, historians, anthropologists, scientists, medical professionals, theologians, and stand-up comics have all noticed and remarked upon, men and women are different. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But we're going to not just say that they're different and not just make remarks about the differences, but we're going to look at the fact that God designed them distinct on purpose for a purpose. That these distinctives, these things that go into masculinity and femininity aren't random or evolutionary, but that they were built into us, baked into us on purpose for a purpose. You could say that we were built and blessed, or we were designed and destined, or you could say it in this long sentence that we looked at last week, which is this. We are created, image-bearing, embodied, and distinct people made for complementary co-rule with God. And what we looked at last week was created, image-bearing, embodied, and distinct and today we're going to look at complementary co-rule with God. And we're going to try to wrap our head a little bit around what's built into masculinity, what's built into femininity, and why is that good? Because the Bible tells us that it's, it's good. Now, um, in order for this to be sermon length, we're going to speak in some generalities. So there are going to be some things that I say that aren't always true for all men or all women, but they're generally true. And then we're going to try to rough in some of the baseline things that are handed as responsibilities to masculinity and handed as responsibilities to femininity and handed as gifts to masculinity and handed as gifts to femininity and handed as gifts to masculinity for femininity and handed as gifts to femininity for masculinity. And I will try not to say femininity and masculinity that many times in a row again. <laughs> but no promises. So grab your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look in verse 26. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, kind of looking at this same passage last week, and we're going to notice some different things. So it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So we are designed in God's image. After our likeness, and let them... So this man is not male, but humanity. Let them... And we're going to see that fleshed out even more in just a second. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So humanity was made for nothing less than complete and utter world domination. <laughs> That's what we're designed for. Authority is built into humanness. So if you dislike authority and reject authority and think authority is bad, you are rejecting something essential to the nature of humanity. That every single person in this room was built to wield authority. And you need to understand that we were designed to exist in authority and to wield authority and to wield it well and to co-rule with God. God's going to rule over the earth, but he specifically designed image bearers to have dominion, co-dominion with him and co-dominion with one another. It is weighty and beautiful that God would lay that responsibility on us. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Again, that's humanity. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And, and Genesis 5 is going to say the same thing, but it's this picture of humanity being both male and female, designed with a purpose, for this purpose. And I want you to know something. It's something that we just assume that we know without knowing that we know it, but in our cultural time, I need to point it out. Uh, when it says male and female, or later when it says that God made a woman and brought her to the man, you know what that means. This isn't confusing language for us. I was reading a book to, to my children, or read at night to my children some, and I thoroughly enjoy that. do a lot of voices. It's a lot of fun. Um, there's a book that we gave up on because it annoyed the snot out of me. But... One of the things it did early on in the book was it said, it was a little adventure book or whatever, and it said that in their garden, there was a thwap. And a thwap is about the size of a zonk. And then it just moved on with its hilarious little joke where it tells you two words that you don't know what they mean, uses one to describe the other. Ha ha, you got us. I was just very angry at this author. I still am. I just shouldn't talk about it here. So. <laughs> That's not what the Bible's doing. When it says male and female, it's not talking about thwaps and zonks that we don't understand what it's talking about. When it says man and woman, you know what it's talking about. You know what a man is, you know what a woman is. You actually know what a man is and what a woman is with surprising accuracy. You, you can walk around and spot them. And you're real good at it. And so when it says this, it's distinct creatures that are distinct on purpose and we know built in some of those distinctives. We've lived around it our whole lives. And so when it says male and female and later man and woman, we know what those are and that God intentionally from the very beginning built this distinction in. So look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So this blessing, this intentional design that God gave us, is to subdue the earth. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, you have, the healthy human has everything it needs to survive built in. You, you breathe with your own lungs. Your body converts oxygen, puts it in your bloodstream. Your heart pumps that around. You eat on your own. You digest on your own. There is one thing, though, essential to the existence of humanity that God did not give you the ability on your own, but split that, and he split it based off of gender, and that is reproduction. And he made our participation in reproduction not just have to have two distinct types of people, but our roles in reproduction are very different. If you don't believe that, you can ask my wife, because when I said we should have more children, she said, it's difficult. And I said, it wasn't that difficult. <laughs> and she seemed to think that her participation in it was different from mine. She told me we could have more kids if I had them. Because it's difficult. It's very different. It's wildly different for the way that God designed this. And y'all, much of human history and the way things have played out between men and women is built into this one particular design difference that God gave us. Women get pregnant and men do not. Women stay pregnant. And look, being pregnant, you are, you are I mean, doing this amazing, phenomenal, you're creating a human inside of you. It's insane. But being pregnant also makes you bad at most everything else. <laughs> it just does. <laughs> just look up pregnancy brain. My wife one time wore one of my flip-flops and one of her flip-flops for like an hour before she noticed. She did not get faster and stronger while pregnant. She got to where she couldn't breathe or sleep. But she's making a human inside of her. It's insane. And then after the baby's born, you don't just bounce off and they don't run off like lizards. <laughs> they cling to their moms forever and have to be fed by their moms. The, the ability for a dad to feed a child is a recent development. And it's not even something that we did in our bodies. Y'all, this is historical 
fact that has played out in how men and women work, and God built it that way on purpose. And here's what it says in Genesis 31. It says, they saw what he made, and behold, it was very good. God made men and women distinct from one another on purpose, for a purpose, and he says it's good. This is going to be very good. Now, gender is essential to our design as people. This is a quote from Kathy Keller. I'll quote her a couple of times today um, in, her, in the book Meaning of Marriage with Tim and Kathy Keller. She wrote the, the, one on, uh, the chapter on gender differences, and she has some really helpful things to say. But she says this. This means, she's talking about this passage in, Gen, uh, in Genesis. This means that our maleness or our femaleness is not incidental to our humanness, but it constitutes its very essence. That from the very beginning, we were made male or female. God does not make us into generic humanity that is later differentiated. Rather, from the start, we are male and female. Every cell in our body is stamped as XX or XY. And even in situations where there's XXY or XYY, there's still this on every single cell, this mark that delineates between male and female. Is there a Y chromosome? Is there not? It says, this means I cannot understand myself if I try to ignore the way that God has designed me or if I despise the gifts he may have given to me to fulfill my calling. If the postmodern, that's our current cultural approach to things, if the postmodern view that gender is wholly a social construct were true, then we could follow whatever path seemed good to us. If our gender is at the heart of our nature, however, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandoned our distinctive male and female roles. That it is built into your very existence as a human. You are a human, but you're not just a human. You're a male human or a female human, and God did that on purpose. Now, the idea that gender is just a social construct is something that we will deal with more later. But gender isn't just a social construct while there are some socially constructed things, like how we dress. Like there's a passage in Deuteronomy um, or in the Old Testament law where it says men shouldn't dress like women. But that changes from culture to culture, what, what that looks like. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that boys have to like the color blue or that pink is a girl color or that girls have to play with baby dolls and boys have to play with trucks. There's nowhere that says that a man can't wear a green flower shirt, even though some of y'all have had a little attitude about it this morning. <laughs> it's not in there. But there are things that are built into our masculinity and femininity that do, studies bear this out, mean that often little boys would rather play with something that have wheels. And if they get to pick, they'll pick that. And little girls will play with things often. Even if you give them a ball, sometimes they'll treat it like a baby doll. It just is how it works. And that's some things that you can say, well, that's culturally poured into them by the people around them. And maybe, but we are designed differently. And you can look, there's study after study after study that shows this. But that some of the things that we have given to us culturally aren't biblical commands. They're just ways that some of this plays out as we try to figure it out and look at it together. So if, you don't, if you're a lady and you don't like flowers, that's fine. And if you're a man and you don't like hunting, that's fine. And if you don't like football, that's fine. You're wrong, but it's fine. <laughs> it's not unbiblical. Now, culturally, uh, we're given a couple of options on how we should treat gender, and they're both they're, they're bad, so let me share them with you. One is to just say there are no differences between men and women. Just flatten it out. There's no differences. Any difference we see is just culturally given to us. It's just what we taught the kids, but there are no real differences between men and women. That's, that's one thing that we're told culturally. And what that ends up doing, though, the more you press on it, is it either rounds off masculinity or hardens up femininity is usually how this works out. It's usually either trying to press men to be more feminine or press ladies to be more masculine. And it's a rejection of the beauty of the distinctiveness given to us. Uh, one of the books I was reading said, so often one of his problems that he has with people saying that women are just as good as men is that when he talks to them and they play that out, they end up just pulling women onto the battlefield. 
He said most often what they're doing is erasing a lot of the beauty of femininity by pressing into this idea. And that's not always 100% true, but that's what happens is we flatten it out some way and we reject the goodness of the distinctiveness. Or the other cultural option we have is to overvalue one to, uh, and to demean the other. So we th say things like men are trash, women are crazy, men are going to take over the world, women are like this, men are like this, but we mean it in the way that women are dominant and they're going to be the ones who rule everything and they're the ones who are the best and anywhere you add a man, you just added stupidity. One of the uh, arguments you'll hear every once in a while and it boils down to men are stupid, women are just as smart as men. It's like, good. <laughs> what a well-articulated argument. But there's this way that we overvalue one or demonize the other. And so we overvalue men or, and we demonize women. And, and neither one of those is meant to be what happens. God gave them both distinct but gifted for good. So here's what we're about to do. We're going to read in Genesis chapter 2. And we are going to just uh, make some notes about the things that kind of fit under the man and make some notes about the things that fit under the woman. And then we'll kind of take those all together and look at them. So I'm just going to go, that's important, that's important, and then we'll, have, we'll kind of compile a little list, and then we'll look at it all together. All right, Genesis chapter 2. This is the same stuff that we just saw in Genesis 1, but it's zoomed in. It tells us more about how God went about making man and woman. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Okay, so he's not here yet, but we're already told he's got work to do. One of the primary things that's going to happen is that he's going to work. And you can say, that, well, this is the same word for humanity. It is. It's the word Adam. It's the same word for humanity. It's the same word for Adam, the man that they're going to make, but that God's going to make. And then, but this ultimately, as this story plays out, it's, he's talking specifically of the male. So he says, Work. So if you want to write that down or circle it or whatever, we'll put that under man. If you're making a chart, man, put work under there. Woman. Oh, I need to say this. Uh, one time, my wife was wearing a jacket, and I said to her, that's a, that's a cute jacket. I really like that jacket. And what she should have done was blushed and said, thank you, boo. But that is not what she did. What she said was, I wore a jacket yesterday. Did you not like that jacket? Now, maybe I oversold how much I like this jacket. I don't know the way I said it. It's probably I could have delivered it better. When I say, as we're going through this, this is true about men or this is true about women, don't flip it around and say, oh, so men can't, or oh, so women can't. Just hear the direct statement. Does that make sense? Men, you're supposed to work. We're going to talk about that in a second. I'm not saying women aren't. That's not, but we're just, as the essential things that are built in, that's one of them. Okay. All right. Y'all stay focused. Let's keep going. <laughs> verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land. Oh, wait. Is that? No, not verse 6. Jump to verse. Oh, my goodness. That's, it's in there. And a the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Uh, it's going to talk more about the garden where it's located. Go to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So this man goes there and he's got this specific job. So it's work, but then it's work and keep. And we're going to look at that in a moment. So mark that. That's important. And then he's going to tell the man to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go to verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So you can underline not good. If you're filling out the little chart for men, it's work and keep and not good. Now, don't get too excited about writing that. It's not good that he's alone. Masculinity is incomplete without femininity. But... There's a real tension thrown into the text when this is said. Because in chapter 1, God makes something and it's good. He makes something and it's good. He makes something and it's good. And then at the end it says it's very good. 
This is the first time where he's made anything and said, mm, that's not good. Have you ever been around somebody and all of a sudden they go, uh-oh, and you immediately like, what? That's what this is. Uh-oh. And we're supposed to pause. We're supposed to have this moment of, uh-oh, what? How, how, what's going on? And that's what's happening here is that masculinity on its own, God's design for humanity is not going to complete, be complete with just masculinity. So let's, let's look. Yeah, that's where we are. And he was made first. Now, that's not said. It just, it's said. It's there. And you might would think, well, is that important? And the New Testament is going to say, yes, it is. And that's going to play out in the way we're to understand what are the distinctive things for masculinity. So that's what we've got. All right. Go back to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Oh, no, sorry. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, we don't know that that's the woman yet, but that's going to be the woman. And so if you want to underneath woman, when you're filling that chart out, helper fit for him. And we'll have to define what that means. But that's helpful. It's essential to kind of what God has designed for femininity. So helper fit for him. And we'll define those words later. Okay. Now... Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is how the world works. God designs, God creates, and we get to discover and name and classify. He's like the first little scientist charting things out. It's, it's really, it's an interesting picture of how God wants to partner with humanity, and it shows some of the authority of Adam to, to be able to name creatures, that he has dominion over them. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And I think that sentence is so weird. That's what we were doing? When he was naming all the animals, we were also background looking for a helper fit for him. Y'all, do y'all see how much that drags out the tension of this? It says it's not good that he would be alone. He says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And then it says he made all of the creatures. And not one of them was fit for him. None of them could match wits with him. None of them could share Life and ideals and hopes and dreams and effort. None of them. And Adam feels this. I think some of it is to, to show Adam his lack. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. All right, so that rib or came from his side. That's, that's essential to understanding the role of women, the role of femininity. Y'all, everything. Adam was made from dust. Everything else came out of the ground. Eve doesn't. She comes out of Adam. She comes out of his side. She doesn't come out of the front or from behind. She comes out of his side. They pulled apart, almost breaks him. He, he does surgery. It says he cuts him open and closes him back. Puts him in a deep sleep, does anesthesiology. And this picture of Eve being made from Adam and for Adam is important in how we're to understand this. And y'all, this is like love song stuff. They're made for each other. That God intentionally designed it to have this, some level of completeness together. And, and this isn't to say that every single woman or every single man is incomplete. We, we over-celebrate that kind of romantic love culturally where the Bible is going to say that, no, there's, there's a wonderful, beautiful way to live single, a single lifestyle to the glory of God, and it's actually better in some ways. So every lady who says, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to devote my life to Jesus. I'm going to go be a missionary. And every man who takes on the same thing is a blessed, wonderful thing. You're not incomplete because you don't have someone of the opposite gender that lives in your house. But humanity is incomplete without two genders. Our country will be worse 
if we get rid of genders. Because we need masculinity and femininity. Okay, y'all, this, this is great. Watch this. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Can y'all picture God's face when he's doing this? You ever given a really good gift to somebody? He's brought every animal that he's created in front of Adam. And I can almost see him walking up with the woman like, what about this? In our search for a helper fit for you, in the search for a companion, what do you think of this? It's the best thing that he's brought. And we know it's the best thing that he's brought because Adam starts singing or doing poetry, one or the other, both invented to impress women, apparently. <laughs> then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Y'all, he, he goes Ella Fitzgerald on this. At last. <laughs> and he didn't do that with any other part of creation. He didn't go, giraffe. Like it didn't. <laughs> it's not a thing. God brings the woman forward as this like celebrated crescendo of creation. And we should not have that lost on us when we read this text. We were stuck for a long time with, we're missing something. And then there's a poem, a song when she shows up. And I can tell you this, men in the room, we've felt this before. We've had the moment where we were just around guys for too long where we existed in just a masculine world for too long and then some femininity showed up and you were like, thank you. This was needed. This was helpful. This is so good. And that's the way this is written. That humanity is the capstone of creation in Genesis 1. But then Genesis 2 is like, yeah, it is. Humanity together. But don't miss the celebration of the woman. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's it, written, a couple of interesting things in that, that passage, that verse right there, is that the man leaves, he's going to set up a new kind of household. He's the one leaving is what we're told. Um, and it says that he would leave his father and mother, meaning that from the very beginning, we're, father and mother is the ideal. And uh, I was reading some... Uh, sociologists that said that if they had to just come up with it after doing all their study, if they had to come up with the best way to raise a child, they would have come up with this, something like this, a father and a mother, like that you need masculinity, you need femininity, and that's the best way to raise children. Now, in some situations, we're not in that situation. And if you're a single mom and you're having to raise children on your own, where, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds, but that's the ideal. And that's why God made reproduction happen the way it happens. 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Y'all, they were perfectly comfortable with their gender. Perfectly comfortable with their bodies. That's one of the blessings that happens in the original design for humanity. He was a man, knew he was a man, felt good being a man, was glad to be a man. She was a woman, knew she was a woman, felt good to be a woman, glad to be a woman. He was glad she was a woman. She was glad he was a man. It was good. That's part of the very good design here. All right. Where are we at? Where's our man and woman chart that we're working up here? Man, work and keep. Not good on his own. It's not good that he's alone. He was made first. All right. Woman is helper fit for him. Created from Adam's side and a celebrated crescendo of creation. Now, that's very good. And we have never enjoyed the just very good version of this. Not a day in your life. You've enjoyed some glimpses of it. You've gotten some taste of it. You've seen it work well, but you've never just gotten this because Adam and Eve immediately fail and fall into sin. 
So we're going to look at Genesis 3. We're going to look at the curses because they also help us see some of the tension here and some of the way God intentionally designed men and women to function differently. All right. After they rebel against God, God curses certain things. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So there may have been some pain, but now it's been multiplied. And it does seem also that there's an extended painfulness, difficulty in the overall raising of children for women. And observation seems to bear this out. That women have a lot of care and love and connectiveness to their children in a distinct way from the fathers. Fathers love their children, but there seems to be some kind of distinct thing here that that goes along with the difficulty of not only giving birth but also of just bearing and raising children. I remember when our son was born, I was holding him, and my wife said, don't you just love him so much? And we were at the hospital, and I said, I don't know, I just met him, give me a minute. Which I thought was hilarious. She didn't think it was funny at all. <laughs> and it was a joke, I did love him. But the reality was, she had known him for nine months. She had known him like he had existed inside of her. He was much more real to her for a long time than he was to me. And it seems like that's continued, that there's some amount of this connection that she has with our children that I love my boys as their father. But our approaches and tone on things is just different. And so it's cursed. And certainly it has a lot to do with just the process, but it seems like there's maybe more there. It also says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The beautiful design of headship and helper, which was celebrated as very good, now makes us feel uncomfortable for me to even say headship and helper. What was going to be something that we delighted in and knew a beautiful picture of is cursed so that there's friction, there's dominance, there's demeaning, there's all these things that go into this now that make it worse, but it's cursed. And we'll see in a minute more of how that plays out. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, he was meant to lead, he was meant to be the one who helped protect her. Like, as far as we know, God only told him not to eat of that tree. Maybe God told her, but we don't see that in the text. So it was partially on, seems like it was on Adam to help protect them from this, to help them make wise decisions together. Since you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is cursed for men. Now, childbearing and work existed pre-fall, and they're essential to existence. But now they're worse. They're broken. And this headship and helping, this design for masculinity and femininity is the same. It existed pre-fall, but now it's worse. It's, it's messed up. We only have gotten the janky version. <laughs> we've seen some blessings of it. But we've also gotten it broken apart. So, it says this, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And that's another thing that's important for, for women. Um, her name is Life Giver. And that's what he names her. Again, indicating some of Adam's authority in naming his wife, but also this elevation of her as the mother of all living, that she's life giver. So let's look at our chart that we've made here. Man, he's to work and to keep. It's not good on his own. Um, that's masculinity, incomplete on its own, which is like one of the things that first wave feminism articulated was like, we need femininity in the world for it to be good. And they were right. This is good. 
Uh, he was made first and work is cursed, woman, a helper fit for him, created from Adam's side, a celebrated crescendo, childbearing, a relationship with the man is cursed, and she's called life-giving or life-giver. All right, let's just talk to men for a second using the work that we've done so far. Men, you are meant to work and to keep. It's part of the thing that's given to masculinity that you should play out in your life. This means that laziness is bad. And there's something, like we know this, but there's something gross about a lazy man. It just is, it's just bad. It's a rejection of masculinity. It's a rejection of humanity. It's you're meant to work. You're meant to labor. You're meant to cultivate. And here's the thing. Primary examples of masculinity, the old pagan version. This is Tim Keller fleshed this out. I thought it was a helpful. He said, you got three kind of versions. The old pagan version is all hardness, no softness. It's just warrior. That's Achilles. That's Beowulf. That's the, the version of, we, I want my enemy to beg for mercy so I can cut their head off while they're doing it. That'll be funny. It's the old version of masculinity. And then he says, you jump to the modern version and it's all softness, no hardness. It's all gentility. He said, if you actually look at history, the hard version of man creates a society. The society gets created. All the men get soft and a new hard version of man comes in and conquers them. That's how history plays out. He says, it's only the Christian version that says we're supposed to be both. Y'all, this, this concept of work, he's a gardener. Too much patience, gentleness, that takes how much control over yourself and over your frustration and how much trust in the Lord it takes to, to garden. But he's also a keeper. He's to keep the garden. He's to defend it. And you're like, well, it was in the, what was there to defend? Oh, he immediately lost it from an enemy that it needed to be defended against. That word keeper is the same thing we just read where it says God is my keeper. It's like the keeper of a gate, the keeper of a castle. It's a watchman is the same word. So you're supposed to be a gardener and a guard. Which means that a godly man is the best person to hand a baby to. And the worst person to try to kidnap a baby from. That's the way that's supposed to work out. Tough and tender. Now this is what Jesus was. He could run everybody out of the temple. In the midst of buying and selling. I've always said, if you think you're bad... Go throw everybody out of the barnyard flea market on Sunday. <laughs> we'll find out real quick how bad you are. If you can clear the place, you're as bad as Jesus is. But he also was surrounded by women who knew that he understood them, that he related to them, that he treated them with dignity and worth. He was also surrounded by children who felt somehow oddly comfortable and welcomed around him. And that's a beautiful picture of masculinity. And this idea that he's made first and that Eve comes out of him and is built for him is where the New Testament is going to anchor this idea of headship. And you're going to see Peter talk about it. You're going to see Paul talk about it. This idea of headship, this idea of male leadership. And it's going to play out throughout the whole Bible. It's assumed throughout the whole Bible. But we're going to see some words given to it in the New Testament. But this idea of headship, that men go first in a way, is not men go first in luxury and relaxation. They're not first in line to get the dessert. They go first like a shield. They're meant to, to take the brunt of difficulty on behalf of everything behind them. That's the idea of headship. And the reason we cringe at it, we'll get to later, is because we hadn't done that right. But that's what that's supposed to look like. There's a reason why I watched men pull up some today when it was raining harder and drop women and children off and then drive away to then walk in the rain. That's how that's supposed to work. Supposed to be some amount of extra difficulty added to men for the sake of those around them. And this does not... Speak ill of women. The idea that we should throw men at things and let them die, let them carry the brunt of difficulty, let them carry the weight of things, does not speak ill of women. It's part of the song of, at last, how wonderful. My brother is a police officer. 
And he was telling me a story about they had a guy in a house. They had surrounded the house. He was hiding behind the engine block and the wheel well of his vehicle because the guy had been shooting out of it. He said he sat crouched like that for like two hours, got to eat some pizza. Eventually, they sent in a robot. And the reason they send in the robot is not that the robot's the best cop they have. They send in a robot with a little camera on it because it's less valuable than what was outside. And when we say that men should go first as a shield, that's not a devaluation of women, it's a celebration of a value structure that says, you know, we, if somebody's got to go down, if somebody's got to be hurt, if somebody's got to, then that should be men, shouldn't be women. That's why when you're trying to figure out what does the Bible say about masculinity and femininity, you can look to the places where it talks to husbands, where it talks to fathers, where it talks to wives, where it talks to mothers, because not all men will be husbands, but all husbands will be men. And not all women will be wives, but all wives will be women. And so it's one of the ways that very practically some masculinity and femininity gets fleshed out. And one of the pictures given to men in Ephesians 5 is that they would love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's this idea of sacrifice for the good of another. So men, do you want others to sacrifice for you? Do you want them to carry the weight so you don't have to? Do you want them to carry the weight of decision-making so that they can be the one who was wrong at the end of the day? Do you want them to carry the weight of effort and intentionality and work? Do you say things like, well, look, you just do what you want to with the kids. That's fine. So that you don't have to, to carry that. Do you shirk at work? Let other people do the hard jobs? Or do you try to walk out what it means to be a shield and to be sacrificial for those around you to work and to keep? All right, women, let's talk about helper fit for him because we have, uh, we read helper in a negative sense or like, like if I, my kid was helping me, I'd say, oh, my little helper. Uh, as if it's somehow degrading. It's not. The, the primary person that's called a helper in the scriptures is God. We even read it. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. That's that same word. It's Azair. And so the, this idea of helper is a strong help. It's also used for reinforcements in a battle. So your help shows up and you get to win because your help is here. And that's the way it reads in the text. Just looking at this text without any kind of historical anything, you would just go, yeah, like this, this is wonderful that she's here and this helper can't be like demeaning because of look at how the text reads. And the idea of fit for him just means complementary, uh, across from designed to, to match together, and that's both reproductively and also just skill set wise, the way we think, the way we approach things. Uh, my wife and I, we, were, we had won tickets from a radio station, and we were trying to get the tickets given to us, and the communication was just awful. It was all over the place and bad and non-existent. And eventually my wife said, so this radio station is just run by dudes, huh? There's not a single woman that works here. And I busted out laughing because that's really what it felt like. It felt like we were just dealing with men because of how bad it was. And there's this idea of woman as coming in and fixing a whole lot of, complimenting a whole lot of where men might be strong, they're fixing where all these weaknesses are found. This idea of Ezer is not condescending. There's this picture here of the gift of going second. That women get to show up and make things better because men have already roughed in a whole lot of stuff. That's, that's one of the ways that this plays out. And it plays out this way in particular in marriage where you get the gift of going second. And it's not to be demeaning. It's meant to be a gracious gift where you get to go, where can I help? Where can I serve? Where can I come along and make this better and do things that, that you would not otherwise be able to do? And this plays out in human history and it plays out in God's good design. And it's not meant to be taken as anything but good. But there's a reason why it is, and that's this curse that comes into the midst of how we relate to one another in gender. That he will have dominion over you. Your desire will be contrary to him, but he will have dominion over you is how human history is played out. So that your desire will be contrary for him is the same phrasing that's used in Genesis 3 when God's 
giving Cain a warning and says that sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same phrasing. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you is the exact same phrasing. And it means not, sin's desire for Cain isn't nice. Your desire for your husband here is this in-conflict desire, but it says he'll rule over you. But the reason why I think this is given to women, the reason why it's a curse said to women, is not because they're going to be the primary offenders in this. They're going to be the ones causing all the problems. It's because they're going to carry the brunt of the curse in how this is going to play out. This is the way Kathy Keller puts it. As to why she's going to be the only one who writes in this chapter. She said, we've been writing together, but I'm writing this chapter on my own. And she says it this way when she's talking about gender differences. She says, I have had more direct experience in talking about and struggling with the difference in gender roles between men and women. No surprise there. Under the influence of the curse in Genesis, every human culture has found a way to interpret male headship in a way that has marginalized and oppressed women, and it's usually the women who notice and object to this treatment first. So what was meant to be sacrificial, joyful, gracious service and celebration in male headship becomes domineering. And one of the reasons why we have so much conflict here and pain here and one of the reasons why we dislike so much of what is said when we start talking about what men do and what women do is because of how terribly bad this has gone. I I heard a study one time where they asked college students, what would you do to prepare to run at night? And all the men said stuff like, wear shoes. Get my playlist together. A whole lot of the men thought. Is this a trick question? Some sort of riddle here. And all the women said things like, tell somebody where I was going, get a friend, plan my route, don't listen to music, I need to be able to hear my surroundings. And most of them said, I would not run. And that's because Men have wielded what God graciously gave us, which was a bigger body and strength for wickedness. And it's sickening and it's evil. And what God meant for every place a man went, for everybody else around them to be safer, has not been true in human history. There was a Twitter thing where someone said, hey, men don't exist for a day, what would you do? And women were like, go out in the world. Go out in the world and not be scared. And that should not be how this has worked, but it's how it's worked. And so when there's a tension and a rejection of any amount of male authority, it makes a whole lot of sense because if you look historically, it's played out really poorly. But the response to this is not to reject it, But we need it to be redeemed. We need the Lord to come to work here. We'll talk about that in a second. The last thing I want you to see is Eve as life giver. There's something intentionally wrapped up in the way that women are meant to be that involves childbearing and child raising. And we should not detach that from femininity. Abigail Favali grew up in the church. She was a um, feminist scholar and professor. She's now a professor at Notre Dame. But she grew up in the church and she said when she got to college, she started trying to figure out who am I supposed to be as a woman. And she said she didn't think the church had good answers. But feminism had some really good ones. And so she, she said she took that on as her new religion until she got pregnant. And then she felt like feminism didn't have a lot of answers for the things that she was experiencing going through. And she said it is surprising how detached Gender philosophy is, gender theory is, from the phenomenon of motherhood. And that we should not separate that out from femininity because it is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now, not all women will be pregnant, will get pregnant, will have children. But it's built in, this idea of life giver is built into femininity. So we need a redeemed version of this. We need a lot of repentance. We need a lot of repentance for where we have degraded the opposite gender or degraded our own gender. Where we've rejected God's good design and not seen this as helpful. We need a lot of forgiveness for where this has been wielded poorly against us. 
We need a lot of humility as Jesus comes in and rescues and redeems us and forgives us and calls us to, to faith in him. We need a lot of humility in trusting that this is good and that his design for this is good and a lot of humility as we try to figure it out. I want to close with this. First Peter 2. As Peter is introducing this concept of what it looks like to live out life as Christians, and he's going to talk about his, uh, his call to husbands and wives. As he's finishing it up, as he's going to give that, he starts here and says this. Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Meaning we're meant as sojourners and exiles to look different from the culture around us and to control ourselves and to not approach the world the way everybody else approaches it. Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What if our culture said... Christians are crazy in the way they think about men and women. They're crazy in the way they think about headship and helper and submission. They're crazy in the way this is evil, it's broken, and then they got to come be a part of your community group. And then they got to come be invited to dinner at your house. Then they got to go on vacation with you and they realized that, hold on a second, there's something different here. There's some joy here. There's some peace here. There's some rest here. Maybe they hate men and then they show up and they go, well, I don't hate these men. Maybe they hate the idea of the way this would work and play out, but then they show up and they go, hold on a second, this, this, is, this is something different here. And they have, no, they have no argument against the way it actually plays out. But that involves a lot of repentance. That involves a lot of humility. And it involves a lot of faith as we try to figure out what does it look like for us to be godly men and women in light of the work of Christ in us. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the good gift of masculinity and the good gift of femininity. We're thankful for your intentional design there. And Lord, we have been affected by the fall that has brought in so much confusion and wickedness, abuse, manipulation, anger, hurt. And so Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ. that you forgive, that you heal, that you redeem. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be godly men and godly women who are comfortable in our own bodies and see and celebrate your good design, not only for our gender, but for the opposite gender in a way that brings delight and glory to your name. Amen. The band's going to come back up. We're going to sing. And by God's grace, we're going to keep growing in what it means to be the human that God designed us to be in a way that points to the glory of Christ.